Now, when Jesus was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many of the people there believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, for his part, did not entrust himself to them. He knew people, and he needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Now, there was a man, named, a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night, and he said to him, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher come from God, for no one can do these things that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, uh, or really, I mean, you could translate that now, this is the way it really is. Because no one says, truly, truly, I say to you. This is the way it really is. Unless someone is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, well, how can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Nicodemus, this is the way it is. Unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. So don't marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind, it blows wherever it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you don't know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the spirit. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? And Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you don't understand these things? This is the way it is. We speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you don't receive our testimony. If I've told you earthly things and you don't believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, he's talking about a particular historical event in Numbers 21, the book of Numbers 21, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him shouldn't perish, but will have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Let's pray. Jesus, you said we must be born again. We must be spiritual people filled with your Spirit to know these things, to even understand these things. You just told Nicodemus he can't even understand the things you said to him unless you help and unless you enable him to understand. So tonight, that's my prayer too. I am weak. My friends are weak. We are helpless, actually. And so we would ask you to do in us what you did for Nicodemus, who now sits with you in perfection, made new. It is well with him. Would it be well with us because of you? We ask this in your name. Amen. I want to make a little preface to this sermon. Sometimes, um, you don't know this because y'all aren't preachers, sometimes uh, sermons just flow out of you. You're just like sitting there, boom, it just comes. Sometimes it's just uh, like back-breaking study and reflection and discussion with people. Sometimes half a sermon comes, sometimes no sermon comes, <laughs> but you still stand up and you talk. 
The good news is we just read the Bible and we're gonna talk about Jesus. Uh, and the good news is that he prefers to work in weakness. And so weakness is what I felt today. And I'm curious if part of the reason the second part of this sermon came wasn't just because it was a crazy and I would describe it as a bad day, but uh, maybe I'm getting curious, maybe the reason the second half of this didn't come together is because I'm Nicodemus and I think a lot of y'all are too. His story just maps so perfectly onto my experience, onto how I came to know Jesus or how Jesus came to know me. And so we're not gonna get too autobiographical about Ben tonight because the Bible's about Jesus, not me. But I wanna offer you a piece of my story because I think it's a piece of a lot of y'all's too. So that's where we'll go in the next few minutes. Deal? All right. My first question for you is this though, and it's a real question. I want you to think about this and imagine this as I put it out for you. If the devil had, was given full control, he just had full control over America, what do you think it would look like? What would happen? What would be different? The reins are just handed over to him. Hey, you can get in the driver's seat, Satan. America is yours. What do you think it would look like? Where does your mind go, your imagination? When you get that fired up, some of you might be thinking like a scene like Sudan of 10 years ago, like famine and warfare and civil war and just massive human suffering, some kind of post-apocalyptic scene. Uh, some of you might think like just rampant wickedness. You're thinking like, you know, Bourbon Street, uh, the New Orleans one, and maybe that one too on spring break, Duval Street in Key West, Las Vegas. All these cities start popping into your mind. These things you're like, well, that's a bad city filled with bad people. I don't know, maybe you, maybe you think it's now. Maybe you think this is what it looks like. Um, unanswered injustices, uh, a country kind of just uh, sleepwalking its way through a pandemic or whatever else, and I'm not making political statements, I'm just saying maybe some of you think this. What would it look like if Satan had full control over a place? Well, uh, another guy was asked that question and he answered it 50 years ago. He was a Presbyterian minister, like me and Nathan. <laughs> and his answer to the question was this. And he was speaking about Philadelphia because that's where he was a pastor. His name was Donald Gray Barnhouse. And he said, this is what I think Philadelphia would look like if the devil was in full control. All the bars would be closed. Pornography would be banished. And pristine streets would be filled with tidy pedestrians who always smiled at each other. There would be no swearing. And all the children would say, yes, sir, no, ma'am. And the churches would be full every Sunday where Jesus Christ was not preached. If you were raised as a Christian or in the evangelical world and you were raised on like Christian TV, you probably saw exactly what he's describing, these pristine little families where there's always like this glimmer of sunshine at the end of it and like music starts playing and they kind of give you the moral lesson. And it just looks like the perfect family. And you begin to believe like, well, that's what a Christian family is supposed to look like. And no mention ever of the family being a train wreck or the tensions between mom and dad or how scared they are because they don't know how to raise their middle schooler, or how the dad hates his job. No picture of that, no need for Jesus, no crying out to him. We don't usually think of the devil's work or evil or darkness the way Barnhouse does. 
in what he said about Philadelphia. You know, if you're like me, you tend to think of the devil's work as like, you know, the cartoon devil that was on the shoulder. Whenever someone's making a big decision, boom, he pops up. And he's always the cool one encouraging you to like, come on, egg you on to do the cool, risky, fun thing. And then there's this like boring middle-aged angel that pops onto your other shoulder. And this one's kind of egging you on to do the right thing, make the right decision. You don't want to do that. What would people think? How would you feel? My question for you is, what if the devil is both? What if he's the devil on your right shoulder and the angel on your left? What if he is more than happy to stab you in the back through immorality or stab you in the chest through morality? What's the difference to him? You're dead. You're a slave. You're blind. You feel no need of Jesus. Feel no need of grace. Feel fine. Barnhouse captured something that you and I tend not to, what evil actually looks like in practice. It's why all these problems we have in our country are so hard to solve. Because it's so much shrewder and craftier and hiding in plain sight than any of us think. So I think he really got that. So what if the devil is just as much in control of the theologically minded, RUF attending, morning devotion, having nice girl as he is kind of me, my senior year of college, kind of the frat guy downtown all the time, someone you would have been or someone you might have judged? What if he's just as in control of both that little nice girl and the bad boy? Or swap the genders on that. What if he's just as happy to lead you astray through that or through this? Nicodemus is the quintessential nice guy. He really is. I think of all the people that you and I are going to encounter in the Gospel of John this fall, he's going to be the one most of you relate to the most. He was super impressive. If he was in RUF and your senior class was graduating, we did the senior send-off, you would all defer the microphone to him. No, 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 Nicodemus. Like, you've got to be, you're just... You're perfect. You represent everything our class is about. Like, you've got to be the one to have the mic and kind of give the final speech. He was a spiritual guy. He was actually a humble guy because if you know much about the Bible, the Pharisees, right, kind of bad guys, or at least they got that rap. Strict, rigid, don't really care about people. Super stodgy and stingy. But here is a Pharisee. Here is a ruler, a higher up, of this theological party, the Pharisees, these really strict conservative theologians, the Pharisees. Here is a ruler of them, and he's not plotting how to murder Jesus like a lot of the rest. He's not picking up stones. He's not like some of the Pharisees, they could not even listen to Jesus talk without just volcanic anger coming out of them. They thought he was evil. And Nicodemus is, we presume, to be one of the people John mentions in, in chapter 2, verse 23. It's the first verse on your page. Now, when Jesus was in Jerusalem at the Passover, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. What does Nicodemus say right off the bat when he sees Jesus? I saw the signs you're doing. Clearly, you're a man of God. Clearly, God is with you. So he's kind of, a, I don't know, maybe humble fits him kind of approachable, nuanced, thoughtful, you know, willing to kind of resist the crowd a little bit. He's like, hey guys, maybe don't make up your mind about Jesus so fast. Maybe there's, maybe there's some truth to what he's saying. So he's that guy. He's the nice guy. And he's a religious guy, 
and he's a smart theologian. And yet, unbeknownst to anybody else, including himself, he was 100% clueless, hopeless, and helpless when it actually came to knowing who God is and actually having a relationship with God. So remember the dichotomy, perfect put together. He's the guy that you would give the mic to gladly. Say, you, you're the one. He's all of that. You would have looked up to him. You said, can you disciple me? Can we get lunch? And he's also 100% absolutely dead in the dark, clueless about who Jesus Christ is and what it means to know him and have life in him. And so I say this gently, but I know many of you are just like I was when I was sitting in these very chairs 15 or so years ago. Nice girls, nice guys. And my question tonight is, what if your niceness is the very thing keeping you from Jesus, keeping you from knowing who he actually is, from wanting to know more about him, for seeing your need of his mercy? We're Southerners too, not all of us, I know some of you aren't Southerners, but like, look, we're Southerners, we're just nice people. We have black belts in like manners and politeness and like people pleasing. We just, we're just smooth. We know how to be the likable, laid back, fun person at the party. It's just second nature to us. Um, but there's this other person always with nice people. And so I don't say any of this stuff to be crude or to be edgy, but to be honest, right? Let's talk about the other side of a profile of a nice guy or a nice girl, just for a second. They mean well. I really do think, like, let's honor the motives. I think they mean well. I think they're genuine people, genuine-ish people. They think of themselves as a pretty good person, but especially other people think of themselves or think of them as a great person. Um, but they have two lives going on, and so they have very, very tight boundaries about what they will do with the guy that they bring back to their house or do with the girl that they bring back to their house. Because they don't want to like, transgress these lines that they've drawn in their mind or their heart because they don't want to feel dirty the next day. They don't, they're not that kind of guy. I don't take advantage of girls that way. I only do this stuff. So they're very circumspect in like how far they'll go because they don't want to feel the shame or the guilt or the darkness or the ickiness. That's a profile of a nice person. They're very careful at what kinds of porn they look at. Not the weird stuff, not the hardcore stuff, just this stuff. It's a profile of a nice person. Very careful about that stuff in secret. What if my roommate saw the search history? I can't look at that, even though I really want to. They'll really only cuss in private. They're, they're just so friendly in person, but they have a vicious gossip's tongue. They will just roast some people in the living room with the roommates. It's a profile of a nice person. They love to make people happy by committing to things, but when the day of the commitment actually comes, it's like, well, I got better stuff to do. Hey, I can't make it. It's a profile of a nice person. We're flakes, us nice people. And we really do believe we're getting by pretty well. So we sing songs like we just sang in here, but we don't know what we're singing about. There's never the connection to our heart because it's foreign to us. It'd be like me singing, you know, the Spanish national anthem. I can sing it. It's not going to resonate with anything inside of me because I don't know what they're singing about. It's a profile of a nice person. These are people who are respectable you might look up to. Here is why it is so dangerous. There's this weird phenomenon in medicine where healthy people don't go to the doctor. <laughs> it's really weird. 
Only sick people go to the doctor. Jesus says that. I came not for the healthy, but for the sick. I didn't come for the righteous. I came for the unrighteous, the falling apart, not the put together. That's why it's so dangerous. This stuff I'm talking about, it's not so nice. It is fatal and it's dangerous. And I'd estimate it takes down a lot more people than unrighteousness because it just fills us so much with a sense of, I need Jesus a little, not a lot. So we come to him on our terms. You can have this much of me. I'll let you do this. I'll give you this much. We come to him on on our terms and we insist on those terms. A profile of a nice person. So let's get back to Nicodemus. What are the obstacles for Nicodemus getting to Jesus, really knowing who he is, having life in Jesus, having relationship with Jesus? Feel free to slide yourself into the story if this is resonating all with you. You feel like, I'm this guy or I'm that girl. What were the obstacles? He thought he already knew Jesus. He thought he was already alive, and he thought he was in control of his salvation. So what do I mean when I say he thought he already knew Jesus? Well, he knows a lot about God. We've already covered that, right? But what does he say when he comes to Jesus under cover of night? He says, Rabbi, which would have been really respectful. Most of the Pharisees looked down on Jesus. They thought he was a little twerp, and they were going to catch him in a lie or catch him in uh, something he didn't know. But Nicodemus is seeing him as a colleague, a fellow teacher, a, a rabbi, very polite. Rabbi, we know. So there's a little bit of a sense of authority, like we're the authorities and we've stamped you. You pass muster with us. We'll kind of let you in. Uh, We know that you are a teacher come from God, for nobody can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. I think if you sum this up, what we could say about Nicodemus, what do I mean that he, he thought he already knew God? Nicodemus had kind of made up his mind about Jesus already through what he had observed. He'd heard the story about the, the water turned into wine at Cana. He had to have everybody heard about it. He, he had heard Jesus preach. He had heard about other healings or miracles. And he's connecting all these dots, and here's what he's concluded. It's what I think many of you might have concluded about Jesus too. He is special. I'll grant you that. Jesus is special. He is important. Yes, 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 all of these things but he's not God. How do I know that? Jesus says it to Nicodemus' face. I've revealed these things to you and you have not believed them. You do not receive our testimony, verse 11. So Nicodemus comes to Jesus with some questions, but really he comes telling Jesus who Jesus is. Instead of coming truly open-handed and saying, I don't know who you are. Who are you? But he comes to him with a declaration more about who he thinks Jesus is rather than a question of who actually are you. And so he has this kind of thing that a lot of us might have of Jesus is special, but he's not supreme. And so I can't imagine handing over my sexuality to him if he's supreme and he gets all of it. He's Lord of it and giver of it and sustainer of it. So I'll make my little boundaries, but not all of it. Or we we say, he's important, but so are a lot of other things in my life, and I want to be balanced. I don't want to get all lopsided where my spiritual life's kind of like, you know, weighing the scale down over here, but I'm not really paying attention to academics or job pursuit after school or my girlfriend or my boyfriend or whatever. He's important, but so is a bunch of other stuff. 
Who do you say Jesus is? Who have you concluded? Who have you made up your mind Jesus Christ, who reveals himself in Scripture, is? Like Nicodemus, have you made up your mind and the little bit you've seen or observed or heard, that's your conclusion? And now you've just never had curiosity beyond that. The two or three sentences you know, and it's like, boom, I'm done. That's who he is. Do you realize that Jesus is more than your thoughts about Jesus? Who you think God is and who God is is completely independent. There might be a lot of overlap. There might be no overlap. But God is God. He's not an idea. And he's not captive to your opinions or thoughts about him. Who do you say Jesus is? H.G. Wells, a famous historian from the last century, he said, I'm a historian, I'm not a believer, but I must confess as a historian that this penniless preacher from Nazareth is irrevocably the very center of history. Jesus Christ is easily the most dominant figure in all history. To H.G. Wells, we ask the question, well, which one is it? Is Jesus the most dominant figure in all of history, or is he the God over all history, the God who governs all history? Those are millions of miles apart, right? And your response, if, if you have an attitude towards Jesus of H.G. Wells, uh, he is dismissible, because you're the authority that has deemed him really important. You see what I'm saying here? You're the authority who has judged Jesus. He is central to history. But in doing so, you have papered over what Jesus himself said. I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life, I am the resurrection, I am the light. I am your maker. Albert Einstein, know you're familiar with him. He said, I'm a Jew, but I'm enthralled by the luminous figure of the Nazarene. Then he was asked if he accepted the historical existence of Jesus. He replied, unquestionably, yes. No one can read the Gospels without feeling the actual presence of Jesus. His personality pulsates in every word. And so we ask Einstein, well, which one is he? This luminous figure that, whose personality pulsates in every word, did you hear the words that this luminous figure said? When he said, not come to my teaching and it will give you rest, but he said, come to me and I will give you rest. Is he God? Can he give you new birth? Can he resurrect a dead soul? Or is he luminous figure, amazing Nazarene, centerpiece of history? Again, the question to you, have you made up your mind about Jesus? And I'm specifically talking to those of you who grew up in the church because that's who this passage is directed at. Have you hit print a little too soon on who you thought he was? And in all honesty, there's been no curiosity, no intellectual drive, no, who are you? Like Paul as an old man is still saying, who are you? Not because he didn't know, there was more to know, he's infinite. Like John, as a 90-year-old man, 60 years after Jesus ascended, and he's just captivated by him. Who do you think he is? Nicodemus also thought that he was alive. And here's where Jesus starts poking at him. Jesus always wants to talk about the elephant in the room, if you haven't noticed. It's going to come up next week with the woman at the well. It's going to come up after that with the hungry crowds and the 5,000. If there's an elephant in the room, and if you're not familiar with that phrase, it just basically means the thing that you kind of don't want to talk about. You're like, sweep it under the rug. Let's change the conversation to Georgia football, because I don't want to talk about that. And Jesus is always like, just lovingly, he's like, hey, what's that? And you're like, what's what? 
that elephant right there. And he does it to Nicodemus. How does he do it here? He says right off the bat, Nicodemus, there's nothing you can do. You came to me wanting to know how can this kingdom of God that I've been preaching of and saying that I'm the king of the kingdom, you, you've come to me to say, how can I get in on this, be a part of this? How can it become a reality that just drives me and changes me? But you can't have any part of it unless you're born again. And, and, and how, Nicodemus is right. He's right to ask the question, well, how do you, wait, what? This is not the answer he was expecting. Actually, nothing Jesus said that night was what Nicodemus was expecting. I think a lot of it was just like, what is this guy talking about? It did not go the way he planned. Jesus says, you must be born again. He says to us, you must be born again. If you want to have anything to do with me, any part in my life, any part in my truth, any part in being a new human being, you must be born again, which implies you're not alive. Or somehow your first birth was insufficient. And then he goes down a little bit later and he says, he says, if you're born of the flesh, you remain flesh, inaccessible to God. You must be born of the spirit to understand these spiritual things, to have acts to, to be able to come to him. And he's, the metaphor is, is rather helpful because I was talking to someone a while back, a guy, and, and we were reading through this passage together and I said, well, what do you think you do with this passage? And he said, well, I guess like I need to, I need to be born again. And I'm like, I laughed. I was like, wait, what? How does one be born again? How, like, what role did you have in your first birth? What did you contribute to that? What participation did you have in your delivery or whatever else? Nothing. You were a passive object of it. A passive object of your mother, a passive object of the doctors and the nurses caring for you. You were just there chilling. Welcome to the world. Jesus is saying, connect the dots. What role do you have? What contribution, what participation do you have in getting your way back to God, in being good again in his eyes? Acceptable, worthy, beautiful, valuable. What participation do you have? Religion, we've already talked about that. That hit has a whole lot to tell you. Jesus says, you have nothing to contribute. You must be born, two passive words. Birth must happen to you. And you'll be just as passive, in a sense, in your second birth as you were in your first. This must have rattled Nicodemus to the core because for the first time in his life as a spiritual guy, a religious guy, Nicodemus is now realizing, wait, I'm not in control? My hands aren't on the reins? Because I thought if I did this stuff, came to these things, prayed these formulaic prayers, was this kind of person, then that would get me somewhere with God. And Jesus is saying, no, something has to happen to you. Not you doing something. Something must happen to you. And so for the first time, Nicodemus, is, this obstacle is being exposed. That Nicodemus thought he was in control, but he's actually not in control at all. And just to, just to deepen a little bit more, Jesus says to him, hey, think about the wind, Nicodemus. Maybe it was breezy that night. Maybe the leaves were rustling. He said, the wind. It's powerful but it's unpredictable, it's uncontrollable. It blows wherever it wills. You don't know where it came from, you don't know where it's going. You control nothing about the wind except feeling it blow on your face. You're a passive object of the wind too. Jesus is telling Nicodemus, you are not in control, Nicodemus. Jesus is telling you, you are not in control of your status with God. 
You do not hold the cards. You do not hold the reins. You do not call the shots. There is no ace in the whole card to say, look, Lord, I prayed this prayer. We're good now. No, that is called manipulation. That is called coercion. That is called ritualism, trying to do something to get God to do something, and he has nothing of it. Jesus has nothing to do with it. Here's the million-dollar question. I want to share a few brief pieces of my story that I hope resonate with you and we're done. The question is this. Do you feel safer and more hopeful with your soul and your life in Jesus' hands and under his control or in your hands and under your control? Do you feel safe when you imagine I'm in control, I call the shots, I maneuver, I push him away, I pull him in, I cry out for him, I ignore him, like I'm in the driver's seat. Do you feel safer when you're in the driver's seat with God or do you feel safer when one like Jesus is in the driver's seat? Jesus is calling the shots. Jesus holds the cards. Jesus does the saving. Jesus does the growing. It reveals a lot about whether you think God is evil or good whether you think he's a life giver or a life taker, whether you think he's God or not. It goes all the way back to what we started the whole conversation. Who do you think he is? If you are able to listen to him and receive him and hear him on his terms, we should be people who are increasingly comfortable with the idea of him being in control of my lifeless soul instead of me micromanaging and trying to figure out my way all the time back to him. I told you I wanted to end with a little bit of autobiography. Again, not because this passage is about me at all, but because this passage maps on to billions of human beings' lives, including many of yours. And I don't even know what pieces of my story to share. This is the part that didn't get written, so we're just in ad-lib mode here now. I was this guy. I was the good guy. I was a nice guy. Like, in my fraternity, like, people liked me. <laughs> Y'all are like, look at his trying to prove his point here. Uh, I had great friends. We had a blast together. My college years, high school years, all of that kind of stuff. I was a nice guy. You would have thought I was friendly, personal. I was an includer, a bringer. If I'm talking to these guys and you walk, I'm like, hey, have you met so-and-so? That was me. I think you would have felt loved by me unless you really knew me. You would have felt alone with me because I never risked honesty in groups or with people because I, I was terrified to let you know there's more to me than meets the eye. And so you would have felt so lonely in your sin, your darkness, your suffering, your struggles, because I never talked about it, except in the most superficial ways, or like, pray for me, I got a chemistry test next week. Never pray for me, I'm addicted to porn. You would have felt very lonely with me. You wouldn't have felt very loved with me because I was all about saying I'm gonna be at stuff, and I was all about not being at stuff when the moment came. So I would have probably killed the momentum in your circle, your community group, because I was always the guy at the last minute, oh, I got this coming up. One time, you're kind of like, okay, maybe you had something come up. Two times, eh, maybe a pattern here. Three times, you're like, does this guy think about anybody but himself? That was me, but I was a nice guy, so I didn't know it. And I was in a fraternity. There's about 98 guys much worse off than me. So I felt really good about myself. And I colored so carefully with the lines. I'd drink this much, but not that much. I'd go out this many nights, but not that many nights. I'd watch this, but not that. I'd do this, but not that. I was a nice guy. 
And you know what I never felt a single tinge of until I was 24 years old? A need for Jesus Christ to look at me and have mercy on me. So I was a cold, stony, religious person who wouldn't be able to empathize with you with your real struggles because I never saw his piercing, probing eyes look at me and know me immediately like he knew Nicodemus, saw through all the smokescreen, and yet respond to me mercifully. And so in darkness, as he started to open my eyes my senior year, I started meeting up with a a buddy of mine in the fraternity Bible study. Here's the real reason why I'd started to conclude, I don't think I know Jesus. Because the way these guys talk about him, the way I know him is totally different. I'm scared by him. I don't know what to do with him. He really unnerves me and unsettles me. And so I would meet up with this guy at Mellow Mushroom downtown. And I'd he knew what was going on probably the first day, but I'd be like asking for a friend. So what about someone who struggles with this? What do you think Jesus would say to that person? I'm just fascinated. Really? There would be hope for that person? What about this? What about this situation? What about a person who's toyed around with God his whole life? Just paid him lip service so that he can ignore him and go his own way. What about that guy? And I'd listen. And the God that he talked about was astonishing and also a little bit terrifying because he was alive and real I went to my friend in darkness because I I couldn't, I was terrified of telling someone, I don't think I'm a Christian, what do I do about that? Some of you feel that way. You can't ask the question you most want to ask in a small group. I don't know Jesus, but I can't ask the question because I've been in church my whole life. I met Jesus in the dark as a scared little boy at Mellow Mushroom Pizza asking for a friend questions. And Jesus answered my questions through my friend, little bit by little bit over the months, and he showed me who he really was. And I hit this point a few months later of just realizing, first, I'm terrified at the thought of him being in control because I thought, what's he gonna do with his control? What's he gonna do with his power? If he knows the real me, I'm toast. Fairness is just estrangement from him forever. I've done too much. And what I actually found out to be true through his word, through coming to stuff like this, just clueless, but slowly my eyes opening, I started to realize that he is one who gives new birth to dead people. He is one who gives mercy to condemned people. People who feel guilty because they are guilty, he's one who washes it away. He's one who takes shame upon himself that you might walk shameless out the door. Those are the light bulbs that started to come on and I realized I actually want to be under his control. I want him to have the reins. I want him to call the shots. And so all I really prayed at the end of that process was just some random night. It wasn't planned, but it was, Jesus, what do I have to do to know you? I want to know you. And I know him because he has ears and he answers these prayers. And ultimately, last sentence, ultimately, In the midst of your sin, whatever you're dealing with, whatever darkness, whatever stuckness, whatever secret you have or double life you're living or whatever, Jesus says he is one who is lifted up for you. Lifted up for you in the midst of all that junk. That if you look to him and you say, Lord, I think I've made up my mind too quickly. Would you show me who you are? Lord, I'm dead, not alive. Or I feel dead and not alive. Lord, I want you to be in control, not me. He was raised up for that very reason, John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son to come into darkness 
to be lifted up above all the crap, that if you look to him by faith and say, I'm hopeless, I'm helpless, I got nothing, he will make you alive. We pick up the story next week. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, Nicodemus is with you, as we said. He's living with you. He loves you. You love him. You're looking at each other right now. And it shows us, knowing from later on in John's gospel that he was, he did come to know you. The lights went on. He, was, he became a spiritual person uh, because he had your spirit. Um, it gives us great hope, Lord, because we're in process. Somewhere along here, we're religious people, nice people who don't know you. We're baby Christians who barely know you. We're your enemies and we know you're your enemies, but we're somewhere in this process and we need you to meet us in our darkness. Show us that we're allowed to come to you in dark at the nighttime. And then would you begin to put us back together and make us new again. We pray this in your name, amen.